As we go to God's word, let's pray. Lord, I thank you and we praise you so much that the truths that we've just sung are for us and that uh, we can say, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And so, Lord, we come now to your word and we praise you. We thank you for its truth and we just pray this morning that it would speak to us once again. Thank you that by your spirit, your word comes alive in us. And so would you do that again this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this morning is our third in our series on the, in the summer of the Psalms. So far, we've gone through Psalm 1. And Psalm 1, we were reminded that there was basically two ways to live. There's the way of the blessed and the way of the wicked. And each of us has a choice as we even enter this series on the book of Psalms of which path are we on and which path do we want to be on. Last week, we looked at Psalm 34. And Psalm 34 taught us four lessons that David wrote from the cave after life had not gone the way that he had planned and he found himself now out uh, from his people and, and in hiding. And we learned that we're supposed to praise the Lord at all times. We're not supposed to just know God, but we're supposed to engage with him. We're supposed to experience his care and love for us and we're supposed to ex accept the rescue that he alone provides. And so this morning, we're in the psalm that was already read for us just a few moments ago, Psalm 16. And uh, one of the main themes in this psalm is joy. And this question that we're going to look at this morning is, how can we find a life of true and lasting joy? We're all looking for joy. Joy is something that we want to experience in life. But what are some of the things that this psalm teaches us that we can do in order to live a life of true and lasting joy? For Psalm 16, we don't know the exact context of David writing this psalm. Could have been, in some ways, at any point in his life. Uh, it says that it's, the, the subtitle says it's a mictum of David. And so this means it was likely written by David, but there's not consensus about what this phrase mictum means, other than it's probably some sort of musical or liturgical term that was given for the people of God so that they would sing and memorize and know this uh, psalm, these 11 verses that we're going to look at. And so the outline of our uh, sermon this morning is much like the structure of a house. The first couple verses we're going to look at, what are the foundations that we need to set in place in order to have this type of life? And then we're going to look at uh, five different things that we, can look, we, that we need to put into practice building on top of that foundation in order to pursue a life of joy. And then we're going to be able to stand back and look at what that life of joy really looks like in our final verses. So let's just look at Psalm 16. If you have your Bibles, please uh, open them up. Uh, there, if you don't have a Bible with you, there is a Bible in the, in the chair uh, below you. You can grab that and turn to Psalm 16. So let's look at verse 1 that teaches us that God is the foundation of a life of true joy. It says, Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. So this psalm, it begins with David pleading out to God, that God would be the place where he would find refuge. He's choosing to find his refuge in God. Again, we don't know exactly when in David's life this psalm was written, but we know that from the very beginning, David was constantly in places where he needed to take refuge, whether it was when he was a teenage boy and he was defending the sheep that he was taking care of uh, from, from different uh, predators that were, that were gonna go after his sheep, or there was later when he was run out of Jerusalem by his son Absalom, David constantly had a need to cry out to the Lord for safety and for care. 
And so he's saying, this is where I'm going to find it. It's going to be in the Lord. The Lord is going to be the place. It's not going to be in my, my, my own strength. It's not going to be in my position as king, potentially. But it's going to be in the Lord. And so very quickly, we, we turn and we look at ourselves. If, we, if we're looking at this psalm, we, we put up a mirror in front of us and say, what am I looking to for refuge when life doesn't go the way I want it to? Or, or even when it's, when it's going well, where am I looking to for my foundation for a life of true joy? Is it in the security of your family? Is it because you feel a sense of security in your parents or in your spouse or in your children that you're getting your security? Is that your refuge that you're going to? Or is it from the money that you have? Many of us would say, well, it's not, definitely not from the, <laughs> the, my bank account that I'm finding refuge right now. But do we feel good about yourself because I'm able to at least pay my bills? Or even conversely then, do I feel insecure because of the lack of financial stability? Is it in money that you feel like, yes, I am secure, or no, I am not, based on where you're at financially? I think the statement would be true that, that we often run to other things to find our security. And so as we come to the psalm, we see that David in the very first verse says that, no, I'm not going to run to these other things, my position, my strength, the things that I've already done, but it's in the Lord that I'm going to take refuge. Verse 2, it declares that every good thing comes from God. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Again, if you have an English Bible in front of you, you'll notice that there's two different ways Lord is spelled in verse 2. It's using the same four letters, but in the first instance, all four letters is, are capitalized. And this is meant to indicate to us in our English Bibles, or for our English readers, that this is, the author is using God's personal name of Yahweh. The second use of the word Lord in this, in this sentence has the capital L, but the small case, O-R-D. And this indicates that this is a title of God. This is Adonai, meaning this is God's title. He is our authority. He is our ruler. So another way this could be written in English is, to, I say to Yahweh, I say to my personal God, you are my Lord, you are my authority. It's one thing for us to say this, but for David, who is the king of Israel, to say, I also live under the authority of the living God, who is my personal, my personal God. He is Yahweh, I know him by name, but he is also the one that is over in authority on, of me. He is confessing that everything that is good isn't coming from his own hands, but it's coming from the Lord, the one who cares for him, the one in whom he is taking refuge. Every good thing he has is coming from God. Again, this is in contrast to the, the rulers of the other nations who, who make themselves out to be gods. You know, kings of other nations, you think of Pharaoh. He made himself out to be a god, not just a, a one under the gods, but he made himself out to be a god, David is saying, no, I know God, and he is my ruler and authority. Even though I am king over all Israel, I still sit under a ruler who is God. And as Christians, we need to recognize this as well today as a foundational truth for us, that we sit under authority, and that every good thing we have comes from God. James chapter 1.17 says this, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father 
of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So this idea that all good things come from God isn't just a personal reflection of David in his journal, but this is a Christian truth that we need to come and live under, that every good thing we have is not from ourselves, but it is from a God who loves us and cares for us, rules over us yet cares for us, and gives us every good thing. And so when we come to the end of verse 2, we, we see that there's two fundamental truths that serve as the foundation, okay? So if we don't have these in place, we, it's almost like we may as well not even continue on, but these are the two foundations here. God is the source of security in your life, and every good thing that you have comes from him. As we move forward in this psalm, now we're going to see then these five truths that can be built upon this foundation that can help us to live this life of true joy that's promised to us at the end of the psalm in verse 11. So look with me at these five ways we can make God our foundation. The first one's in verse 3. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. So who are the people that Dave takes delight in? It's the holy people of the land. Or if you have an ESV, it says the saints. It's basically fellow believers is the one that David is taking delight in. When is he the happiest? It's when he's with people who are also, also worshiping the one true God. What does this mean for us? It means that there's a special connection that we have when we are with fellow believers. There's a connection that we have with people that perhaps we don't even have with our own family who don't follow Christ. And this would make sense because if we're, if, if we're fellow believers, we also are, are indwelled by the same spirit. And so when we come together, our spirits are, are in unity together with one another. There's a sense of joy and purpose and connection that you can have with other believers that you can't find elsewhere. In the New Testament, John writes this in 1 John 4. He says, And this commandment we have from him, he who loves God must love his brother also. There's a connection that is deeper than just who we are, but whose we are. Okay, not just who we are, but whose we are. We are God's. And your fellow brothers and sisters that are sitting around with you or other believers that you know, you have a connection with them that you don't have with other people. And so delighting in God's people is a foundational truth or is a truth that we have to build on for a life of true joy. And this is why at West Highland we think it's so important that each and every one of you are not just here on Sunday mornings for Sunday morning worship together, but that you're part of a community group that would meet at some other point during the week, a smaller group of people within the church that you could find connection with. Community groups are places where you can experience community in a way that you can't when you're sitting amongst five or 600 other people. There's ways that you can experience transformation as you're engaging with the word and not just listening to it preached, but you're talking about how it applies to your life. And then you're also thinking about how we can be on mission together with one another as we seek to be a part of what God is doing in our city and among the nations. There's ways you can do that in a smaller group of, of eight to 15 or so that you can't do when you're here sitting, chairs faced forward. And so being part of a community group is so important to being what it, 
what it means to be a follower uh, of Jesus here, at, specifically at West Highland. And this fall, Lord willing, if you're not involved in a group, there are several new ones that will be starting, and we'd love to have you join one, especially if you're just joining the church over these past few months. We'd love for you to get involved in a community group. So uh, you can fill out one of the connection cards in the chair in front of you put, and hand that uh, back at the end of the service. We'd love to get you connected in a community group this fall. And so we make God's people our delight. Number two is that we reject false gods. Look at verse four. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. So in verse four, David is making a statement of fact. He says, those who are running after other gods, they're gonna be suffering. Then he also talks about how he's going to apply it. He's saying, I'm not going to pour out these libations that other people, other, other people who are following after other gods are going to do. Suffering is what happens to those who pursue anything or anyone besides God as their source of true satisfaction. The happy ones, we, we remember from Psalm 1 two weeks ago, we talked about the way of the blessed. Blessed also means the way of the happy so if we are happy, we're, we're following this path that God has laid out before us, as opposed to walking in the path of the wicked. We're rejecting false gods. This is part of what it means to seek after of life, of true joy. The people that are on the path of the wicked are like the chaff, we remember, that blows away. And it goes on to say they'll suffer more and more. They're suffering now because they're chasing after things that can't satisfy them. But also, if they continue on this path, they're to continue to suffer more and more, not just in this lifetime, but in the one to come. This, this, this idea of, of pouring out libations of blood to such gods, it's, it's not familiar to us, uh, likely not familiar to you uh, in the year 2023. The term libation here, it's referring just to some sort of liquid that's being poured out as a sacrificial offering to another God. David knows that the people of Israel, they're constantly have been chasing after false gods. The people of Israel, they've known God's goodness, yet for one reason or another, they constantly are chasing after false gods. And it's one thing for us to look back in history and say, yeah, I don't get that. You know, if I was brought out of Egypt and saw the Red Sea part, or if, I, if just all the things that God did in the Old Testament, I wouldn't turn from God. I would, I would just be faithful. But when we think about what's truly inside us, we kind of know that as soon as something goes wrong a little bit, we're turning off that path and going to whatever we think will, will give us our next fix or whatever will, will satisfy us in that moment. We may look to things like alcohol abuse or illicit drugs or pornography, or inappropriate relationships to give us what we feel we deserve. And even if we're not running after some of those things that are obviously illicit and wrong, sometimes we're just then pressing into things that aren't meant to hold, hold us. Things like our work, our jobs. So if I don't feel good about myself, at least let me just press into work even harder and hope that that'll satisfy me yet it lets me down. Or let me, let me press further into a relationship and hope that that'll satisfy me. And then that again lets us down. 
We make a God out of things that we look to to be our true and ultimate satisfaction. So we might not be pouring out libations of blood to false gods, but when we're pressing into other things, we're basically making an idol out of that and hoping that it will turn our, our course around. John Calvin says that when people look for deliverance from things of the world other than God, they overwhelm themselves with new troubles by provoking God's wrath against themselves. So not only do we miss the deliverance that's needed and only found in God alone, but we're doubling down on things that can't satisfy us. And that's causing us to spiral deeper and deeper down, hoping that as we go deeper and deeper down, somehow it's going to bring us up on the other side. But we just constantly find ourselves in this pit because we're, we're pressing into things that can't hold what we need. And then we experience, because of that, God's righteous discipline on us if we're believers or judgment on us if we're not. It goes on at the end of verse 4, or take up their name on my lips. David's saying, I'm not going to put the name of, names of false gods on my lips. He's kind of saying, I'm not going to pray to any other God except for Yahweh, the one true God. Jesus teaches that when we pray, we're to, this is how we're to pray, to our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We don't pray to anyone else other than the triune God of the Bible. We don't pray to saints. We don't pray to family ancestors. We don't call out to other spirits or demons, hoping that they will help us. David's saying, I'm not going to take any other name except for the name of God on my lips as I call out. So we reject any teaching that says we should pray to saints or it encourages us to call out to anything in the spirit world other than the one true God. This isn't just a random teaching to, to suppress fun, but it's for our own good as we seek to live this life that's faithful to God. And so the second thing David highlights as a way to pursue God as the foundation is that we we're going we're gonna to reject false gods. We're going to love on other Christians, and we're going to reject false gods. The third thing I see here is that we embrace God as our chosen portion and inheritance. Again, look at verses 5 and 6. Lord, you alone are my portion and cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. To understand what David's saying here, we need to remember how the land of Canaan was divided up as the people entered into the promised land. That, that, that land was measured out and divided amongst the different tribes of Israel. And then wh whichever tribe you found yourself in, you got an allotment or an inheritance from that portion that was given to your tribe. David was not from the tribe of Levi, but he uses this, or sorry, the tribe of Levi, we will remember, they didn't get a portion of land. They, they were priests, and they didn't get any land of their own, but they were told that the Lord himself would be their portion, which meant that they would live off the, the practical sacrifice that was brought to, uh, to the tabernacle, to the temple, and they would live off that. 
This made them totally dependent on the Lord because they didn't have the land of their own to produce their own crops. The Lord was to be their portion. So again, David wasn't from the tribe of Levi himself, but he uses this as an idea that the land is not his chosen portion, but the Lord is meant to be his chosen portion. As Christians, we're taught in 1 Peter that we are all priests. There's the priesthood of all believers is something we believe. God is meant to be our chosen portion. We are like the tribe of Levi in that we are the priesthood of all believers. We're not looking to land or anything else, but God is meant to be our portion. Think of the people reading this psalm, though, as they're in exile, for example, when they don't have the land. They have to know that the Lord is their portion. When the Lord is your portion, it cannot be taken away. If your portion, again, is your money, or your family, or a loved one, or your job, all of those things can be taken away from you. But if the Lord is your portion, that will never be taken away from you. The Lord will never leave you. The Lord will never forsake you. A life of true and lasting and meaningful joy means your portion is the Lord. So we delight in God's people. We reject false gods and we embrace God as our chosen portion. It also says that we'll be satisfied in what God gives us in verse 6. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. One of the biggest problems we face today as people is that we're always comparing ourselves to others. We're not content with what we have because we see something that we don't have that we want. We might hear someone go on a trip and we wish that we could have gone on that trip. We see someone got a new, you know, 70-inch flat-screen TV and we wish we had that 70-inch flat-screen TV or a living room big enough that a 70-foot or 70, 70 70-foot, wow, now that would be a massive, <laughs> that would be a massive TV. A 70-inch TV screen would be appropriate, but we don't have, most of us don't have living rooms where that's that's appropriate. And so we're in a constant battle to be content with the things that we have. But living a life of true joy means we are embracing the Lord as our chosen portion. Are we able to say with David that because the Lord is our portion, surely I have a delightful inheritance? David had wealth that none of us here will ever have. Yet, he says, it's the Lord that's my inheritance. It's the Lord that, my, is, that is my portion. Things have fell for me well because the Lord is my portion. If we have the Lord, we have all that we need. So we delight in God's people. We reject false gods. We embrace God as our chosen portion, what we're setting our hearts on. And number four here, we heed God's counsel. Look again now at verse seven. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. The fourth way here given is that we see, or to make God our foundation, is that we listen to the counsel that God gives. Now what is a counselor? Some people might be seeing a counselor right now, um, as part of their weekly rhythm or whatever, a monthly rhythm. A counselor is someone who offers you 
wise advice at a time where you desperately need outside counsel. You're basically saying, I don't have what I need in, a, in my own brain or in my own experience. I need someone else who's got some wisdom to look upon my life, hear my situation, and give me counsel. We, in order to live a life of true joy, need to have counsel, but our counsel needs to be coming ultimately from God. Again, I think of the two paths of Psalm 1. We'll just keep coming back to Psalm 1. Again, if you are on the path of the righteous, or if you're on the path of the blessed, sometimes you're going to be on that path, but you're not sure where to go next. You need someone speaking into your life to make sure you stay on that path. Well, this says the Lord is my counselor. We might have other counselors, which can be helpful, but our main counselor needs to be the Lord. Where do we find God's counsel? Well, we find it, obviously, first of all, in his word. In the Bible, we have God's perfect revelation. It says that in God's word, it's everything we need for life and godliness. God's word has what we need to stay on the path of the blessed, to live a life of true and lasting joy. But he's also given us his spirit. Remember, Jesus in the upper room, the night before he going to the cross, he says to them, I'm going to send you another counselor. This counselor is going to be the Holy Spirit who will indwell you. This is the reason why we can say the Lord will never leave us or forsake us. He's given us his spirit. David's able to say that the Lord is my counselor, and yet at the time of him writing this, he doesn't have the full revelation of God's word before him. And he's living in a time where not every believer is indwelt by the Spirit, yet he can still say that he will praise the Lord because he's his, his counselor. How much more reason do we have today to praise the Lord for his counsel when we have his word in our laps, on our phones, however we have it? We have his word. We can praise him. We can access this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And he's also given us his spirit so that we can live out his word. Things that David and the people of God at that time didn't have. We have so much more reason to praise the Lord, but we also need to heed that counsel. We can't just be readers of the word and hearers of the word. We actually need to do it as well to live that life of true joy. We heed God's counsel. We heed God's counsel. We delight in God's people. We reject false gods. We embrace God as our chosen portion. And then finally, the fifth thing here I see is that we keep God as our focus. Look with me at verse 8. I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. I see two main ways here that we keep God our focus. One is that we keep him as our goal. So God needs to be our goal. God is not just meant to be a means to an end for you, as if some other goal, God's going to help you get there, and that's the purpose of God. No, God is the means, but he's also the goal as well. We are made to know God. We are created to know him. If you have anything else as your main goal in life, this is why you will be dissatisfied with what's happening. It's because you weren't made for that thing that you're, you're seeking after. You were made to know 
and experience God. We keep him as our focus. In Luke 9, when Jesus was teaching about the cost of following him, he says, no one who put a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Right? So this is a farming analogy. They're, they're plowing the, the, the fields, and so they put something at the end of the field so that the one who's plowing can just watch as they're walking straight towards that goal. If they start to look to the left, then they're going to veer off path. If they start to look to the right, they're going to veer off path. We need to have God as our goal on this path that he's called us on so that we can experience this life of true joy. We need to keep him as our focus. Whatever the distractions are that are in your life right now, you need to make sure they're not making you veer off course. And if for some reason this morning you feel like you're veering off course, then maybe you have to ask yourself, is God truly my goal right now? Or am I setting myself in a direction that's causing me to go off course? So we keep God as our goal. We keep him as our focus. But we're not, we don't just keep him as our goal. This, the verse says that we keep our eyes always on the Lord. This means the second way, not only just as our goal, but we see his blessings all around us. If we keep God, our eyes always on the Lord, we need to see everything that God is working in that for our good. This week as I was, or actually it was the last week as I was studying this passage, I was reading a sermon preached 147 years ago by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And he, he called this sermon the secret of a happy life. And I want to read an extended quote from this for you this morning because as I was reading, I just can't say this any better than what Spurgeon's saying. So I've edited it slightly so that it's more understandable in modern English. But, but listen to this from Spurgeon. Speaking of this exact verse here in Psalm 16, he says this, We have been taught to see God around us in all things that exist and in all events that happen. Now I pray that the Lord would grant that by his Spirit we may always be sensitive to the presence of God wherever we are. Is it not a sad proof of the alienation of our nature that though God is everywhere, we have to teach ourselves to perceive him anywhere? His attributes, or his are the beauties of nature. His is the sunshine that is, shines on the harvest. His is the perfume which loads the air from the multitudes of flowers. His is the insects which glitter around us like living gems. And yet the creator and sustainer of all these is far too rarely perceived by his people. Everything in all of nature speaks of his glory, but our ears are dull of hearing. Everything from the dewdrop to the ocean reflects the Lord, and yet largely we fail to see his eternal brightness. I beg you, my brothers and sisters, to pray that you may have this text formed into your very souls. I have set the Lord always before me. Refuse to see anything without seeing God in it. Regard the creatures as the reflection of the great creator. Do not imagine that you yourself have understood his works till you have felt the presence of the great creator himself. Wake in the morning and recognize God in your bedroom, for his goodness has drawn back the curtain of the night and taken from your eyelids the sleep, the seal of sleep. 
Get dressed in the morning and perceive the divine care with which he provides for you clothing. Go to the kitchen and bless the God whose bounty has again provided for you a table in the wilderness. Go out to your workplace and feel God with you in all the engagements of the day. Perpetually remember that you are dwelling in his house when you are working for your bread or engaged in business. At length, after a well-spent day, go back to your family and see see the Lord in each one of the members of it. Own his goodness in preserving life and health. At last, fall asleep at night as, a, as in the embraces of your God. This is happy living. The worldly person forgets God, the sinner dishonors him, the atheist denies him, but the Christian lives in him in everything he does. This is the main ingredient in the oil of joy to realize that the Lord is always around you as the mountains are round about Jerusalem from this time and forevermore. Brothers and sisters, the Lord has provided for everything that you need. Every good thing that you've already experienced this morning is because of his kindness towards you. If you'd only just take a few moments to think about all the blessings you've even had in the last three hours or so perhaps since you've woken If we take time to see this, we'll see that God is good. And we just need to live a life of true joy that means we're not going to be chasing after all the other things is by being thankful for what God has already provided you. This is the main ingredient in the oil of joy, to realize that the Lord is all around you, working for you. So how do we make God the foundation in our life? We delight in his people. We reject false gods. We embrace God as our chosen portion and inheritance. We heed his counsel, and we keep him as our focus. And then what is the result? We see this in verses 9 to 11. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of joy, or path of life, You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is the result of the life that has God at its foundation. A life of joy that lasts both today, but also into forevermore. We see that because David is setting out on the path of the blessed, and he's seeking to live out these five things that he's mentioned here, that therefore his tongue can rejoice and his heart be glad. This is the result of making God the foundation of your life, a life of joy today and forevermore. In verse 10, we see, again, the the source of our joy here. And in verse 10, we see just in one of the many places in the Psalms where it speaks not just only of David, but one who is to come, or one that was to come, the one who has came for us. You see, verse 10 is quoted by both Peter in Acts chapter 2 and by Paul in Acts chapter 13 as they preached the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. You see, David is not the faithful one or the holy one that we look to. He's not the one that's mentioned in verse 10. 
We know that time after time, David fell into sin. We know that after he died, his body did see decay. But, verse, but this verse 10 here, it points to the one who is even greater than David. And when Paul was preaching at Antioch in Acts 13, this is what he says. Acts 13, verse 35. Therefore, he says in another psalm, so referring to Psalm 16, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You see, if, if the only thing you take from this message is that here's five things I need to do in my own strength in order to make my life better or make myself right, you're missing the point of, of Psalm 16. You're missing the point because Jesus says everything in the Psalms points to him. He is the fulfillment of the Psalm. He's the only one that truly lives out these five things. He is the only one that truly has God as his foundation. And he's the one in whom his body did not see decay. And that's because that Jesus went to the cross for you and I, knowing that we wouldn't be able to live out Psalm 16 as best as we tried. Jesus knew that we would fall short. And so he went to the cross on, on our behalf so that when you go from church and try to implement the things that the pastor says and you can't do it, you look then to Jesus, not to yourself, to be made right before God. You look to Jesus, not to yourself, for a life of true joy. God did not let the body of Jesus be abandoned to a grave. Three days after he was buried, he was raised victorious. And so that if we are united with Jesus in a death like his, we will also be raised with Jesus in a resurrection like his. Jesus is our only hope whether it's in life or in death. He is the one that we look to. He is the one who didn't see corruption. He is the one that Psalm 16 points to. And because of this good news of the gospel, we get to experience then the promise of verse 11, which says, you will make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. That joy comes from knowing the Lord. That joy comes from knowing that you are secure in what Christ has done for you. You will be filled with eternal pleasures because of Christ and what he has done for you. It's living out, knowing that the gospel is true in your life that allows you to live out Psalm 16, verse 11. Again, this is the path of life mentioned in Psalm 1. It, that's the life that is like the tree planted by streams of living water. So that in season or out of season, it is producing fruit. It is experiencing the fruit of the Spirit, one of which is joy in and out of season. I want to be like that tree planted by streams of living water. I want my life to be like that. I don't want to be like the chaff. I don't want to go running after all of the other things. And so the promise of Psalm 16 is that you can have that life, and it's through knowing Christ the one who verse 10 points to. If we're chasing after other things, they're just going to let us down. This joy that's promised, it's not just a trite 
happiness. It's not just putting on a smile even though we're not feeling it. It is this deep and abiding truth that knows that because I'm connected and rooted to Christ, I can weather any storm that comes in my life and I can experience joy today and forevermore. This is the joy that we receive when God fills that vacuum that each one of us has in our hearts that we can't fill anywhere else. John Piper says, any other joy would be qualitatively insufficient for the longing of our souls and quantitatively too short for our eternal need. In God alone is fullness qualitatively of joy and joy forevermore quantitatively. Again, anything other than God, it's not enough for what we were created for. And that's why we malfunction when we're chasing after the wrong things. But all those other things are also quantitatively insufficient because they might give us a bit of joy for a short period of time, but in the end they let us down. Only in the Lord is fullness of joy and lasting joy forevermore. The Christian life isn't about suppressing joy. It is about pursuing joy in the place where it is offered most fully. And that is most fully in the Lord. Remember last week, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We experience him. We, we love him. We experience that joy. He's the only one that can give us what our heart truly needs for now and forevermore. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand pleasures forevermore. Lord, I thank you so much for these truths from Psalm 16. Lord, that we all experience a longing within ourselves for something that lasts and for something that gives us meaning. Lord, we long for a foundation that we can build our lives upon. And so I thank you for your word that once again shows us that we can find that. We need to take our refuge in you. We need to find you as our, as our only true good. And that, Lord, as we build our lives after these things, as we follow along the path of the blessed, Lord, that you will give us fullness of joy. And that, Lord, you've, you've given us all that we need in Christ. Every way that we've fallen short, Christ has made up for on the cross if we turn to him and look to him. So, Lord, I pray that we would do that even today if we've never done that before. And, Lord, that we would know fully that whether it's in life or whether it's in death, that you are our portion and that because our hope is in you, we will never lose that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. My encouragement is just that you would live your life with the foundation that's been set before you in Psalm 16 that you would rejoice in the Lord always and that, again, you would say, rejoice. My prayer is that this week you'll just go out looking to seek God for your fullness of joy and to see him for pleasures forevermore. Amen.